Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews. It's near the very back of your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 7. I'll read verses 24 through 27. If you're looking for this in, in a Bible, you can find it in the one that's right there in the pew uh, rack in front of you on page 1188. Now, Saturday evenings can be a dangerous time for preachers. If, if all is well, then it, he, he sleeps well. If, if he's a little anxious about what's coming tomorrow, then it can be difficult. So, so I think that makes it a difficult time for preachers' wives in particular. So last night, Laura looked at me. She, she poked her head around the corner of, of uh, a, a door frame in our house and said, Guess what? Tomorrow, we don't have to figure out which church to go to. We get to go back home. So it really is a joy for us as a family. I mean, I know you saw David, Leah, and Sam a bunch this summer, which, I mean, that for me as a dad, when I talk to them about, I'm thinking about taking a sabbatical, and they all looked at me like, we don't have to take a sabbatical, do we? That they wanted to continue worshiping here week by week. But for Laura and I to, to have the break was such a, a joy. And I was able last night to say to her, yes, I'm excited to be back home. Now, I might not have been able to say that at the beginning of the sabbatical because the break was necessary. And it really wasn't probably until the end of July, beginning of June, when meeting with my counselor that he said, so how are you feeling? I said, I'm starting to get excited about going back. He said, good. Then we're making progress. We're turning a corner. The rest has been helpful for you. And in some sense, that's what this passage does for us. It, it's a reminder that, that whether I feel like I've, I've burned myself out by working so hard and was it enough, or I feel, uh, or, or I feel excited of, look at what I've accomplished, we, we're reminded of the goodness, the greatness, the sufficiency of Jesus, our Savior. The book of Hebrews really is, is a, a long description of the greatness of Jesus Christ, that he has supremacy, that he is better than anything you could have imagined. He unlike the priests of the Old Testament, meets our needs completely. He is our perfect pastor, the one who mediates for us as our high priest, the perfect sacrifice. And so with joy and encouragement, let us hear the word of God. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Hebrews 7, 24. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Let's bow in prayer as we come to hear the word of God proclaimed. Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the clarity and the power of your word. We ask that your spirit would take your living and active word and apply it into our lives. For those that listen today without an understanding of the grace of Jesus, 
without knowing his forgiveness. Lord, let today be a day of faith. For those that are trusting in themselves, Lord, let them turn from from self-confidence to full and complete reliance upon Jesus, trusting in him alone. Father, for those of us that are followers of Christ, that are believers, Lord, I pray that we we would be encouraged and strengthened by the hope that is offered to us in your word. Lord, we come today praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our faithful shepherd, our rescuer and king, our great high priest. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I've known since I was 14 that this was exactly where I wanted to be. In the pulpit, on a Sunday morning, to make the gospel known in the church and community. Now, to be fair, I pictured the church that I grew up in, in Shemong, New Jersey, with its baby blue carpets. I mean, it was redecorated in the 1980s, after all. And, but but, but for, for all of these decades since, I've longed to be right here, doing this. Felt called by God to do this. So what happens when this feels like it's too much? I mean, that was one of the questions that I wrestled with during my sabbatical. Why does this feel like too much? Now, my call to preach the gospel is stronger than ever. And, and now, when I picture preaching, I don't picture the baby blue of my childhood church. I picture this space right here with you. But what happens when it feels like too much? When life feels like too much. When the responsibilities in front of you feel overwhelming. But it's not just in moments that we feel overwhelmed by our insignificance that we need to ask this kind of question. Where can I turn? What hope do I have? Perhaps it's even more important when I'm confident that things are going well. When I feel like, no, I'm I'm knocking it out of the park. The the larger danger to my heart, and I think to yours, is not when I'm able to admit I'm insufficient on my own. The larger danger is when I am tempted to think that I'm entirely self-sufficient. Our text this morning from, from the book of Hebrews, it exposes, it shows us our weakness, our insufficiency, our inability to rescue ourselves, our our need of someone else to step in. But it's here, when we reach the end of ourselves, that, that the author of Hebrews points us toward, to the perfect, enduring, and effective work of Jesus, our Savior. See, when I am willing to admit that I cannot accomplish this work entirely on my own, then I will find a Savior sufficient to care for me, a true pastor with a capital P for all of us. Look, look at, with me at the, at the passage. It shows us that Jesus' ministry lasts forever. Now, this summer, I've, I, I've had the joy of being in your midst 20 years, and I was reminded of that this week because our oldest son celebrated his 20th birthday this week. I looked at my wife and said, you have a 20-year-old. Like, we're not parents of teenagers 
only anymore. And then I realized, oh, that's right. Laura was great with child when we arrived here. She was six months pregnant with David when we began ministry here, and he's 20. And my predecessors, many of them had lengthy ministries. Jim Brown, Pete Smick, Dan Cannon, Ken Horner, Harold Laird. There's a history here, but, but I, need, I need a pastor whose ministry lasts forever. That's, that's what the author of Hebrews tells us happens here. Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. And this is in contrast to the way the, the, the high priesthood worked in the Old Testament. We, it begins with the brother of Moses, Aaron. And after Aaron's death, who became high priest? His son. After his death, who became high priest? It was passed along through the, the Aaronic uh, line. And we know some of their names from Scripture. Eliezer, Phineas, Abashu, Buki, Uzi, Zehariah, Mahiath. And, and the list goes on. We get more names that come after the, the exile, Joshua, Jehoiakim. Historians, both ancient and modern, estimate that, that there were likely 83 high priests during this historical period. Because what happens to the current high priest? He has a temporary ministry. It wasn't meant to last forever, but we need a high priest whose work lasts forever, whose death does not destroy or does not bring an end to his priesthood. We need a Savior whose ministry continues through death. And that's what, what the book of Hebrews tells us, that Jesus Christ is, he was, he was not made a high priest because he was a descendant of Aaron. He's actually not a descendant of Aaron. He was made a high priest for another reason, and, and you're going to have to go up or maybe over in a column to Hebrews 7, verse 16. So we didn't read this yet this morning, but we're told that, that Jesus is not a, a high priest in the line of Aaron. Hebrews 7, 16 we need a high priest, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. We need a high priest for whom death is not the end. We need a high priest who cannot be defeated. Jesus is the high priest. We need not merely a son of Aaron, we need the son of God to be the mediator for us, the one who intervenes and brings sacrifice. And that's what the end of verse 25 tells us in Hebrews 7, that Jesus always lives to intercede for those he has saved. Yes, Jesus' earthly ministry happened once. His death happened, and we'll see this in greater clarity as we move along, once for all, but his ministry is not done. His work on the cross is finished, but his ministry is not done. Because we're told Jesus always lives to intercede for us. And think of what good news that is in your moments of desperation and weakness. What is Jesus doing? He is interceding on your behalf before the throne of God, declaring that if you've put your trust in him, then you belong to him forever. There is nothing that could rescue you from, from your hands. He has given you, poured out on us, the church, his Holy Spirit to provide words of comfort. There is never a moment in my life that Jesus is not by my side, that Jesus is not on my side. And this means that you and I need to declare the truth of this gospel, that all who trust in Jesus 
are protected by the finished work of Jesus. Because, as one commentator says, Jesus is eternally engaged to bless and protect. What's he doing right now? He's there to bless and protect you. To care for you. To to push aside the the lies of the devil. To to turn you back from your self-reliance. To to care for you, to bless and protect you. His ministry lasts forever. And his ministry, it not only lasts a really long time, but it is perfect. Look at the beginning of verse 25. Therefore, okay, that means we have to go back to verse 24. So because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So because he lives forever, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Jesus does all of the work of salvation. It's not as if he drags you halfway up the ladder to heaven and says, okay, I let you save your strength. Let me let you go here and you get yourself the rest of the way by your good works, by your obedience. No. How how much has Jesus done for us? He has saved us completely. He has done the work. He saves us for all time and in all completeness. In, In every way that you needed rescue, Jesus was the perfect provision for us. And so verse 26 continues then, that such a high priest meets our need. One is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Such a high priest meets our need. He is exactly the priest that we need. Everywhere that you have failed, Jesus has succeeded. Everywhere that you are guilty, Jesus removes guilt. Everything that you need, Jesus has accomplished. His ministry exactly matches our need. Now, if, if, if this is new to you, if this story of, of who Jesus is and what he's done, if you're inquiring into this, or maybe this is your first time even hearing this truth, then, then maybe this feels a little too convenient. Like sort of the, the, the terrible movie plot in, you know, like a, a bad B-level movie where you think, oh, that's how they're going to wrap this up? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's just totally contrived. I mean, shouldn't real life be a little bit messier? You, you imagine the, the crew members on the stranded Apollo 13 mission running out of oxygen, and they have to figure out how to fit a carbon dioxide filter from the command module into the lunar mo- module so that they can continue to breathe. They have to find a way to make a square filter fit a round hole. And when you watch the movie, you think, wait, they're going to make this work? This is ridiculous. But of course, it wasn't made up by a screenwriter. It really happened, right? Because life is really messy. And if, and if NASA could have anticipated, what would they have done? Send an extra filter. Or maybe given them the attachments of, hey, you know what, why don't we make the filters the same size so that you could use them in more than one spot, right? If you could anticipate the problem, then wouldn't you work to solve the problem? See, when God, in in the the brilliance of his creation, anticipated our rebellion against him, he purposed to meet the need perfectly. And so to dismiss the Savior, because, well, it just feels too too easy. It feels too convenient. It it feels like a, a, a fairy tale. To dismiss it as such is to ignore the depth of your own sin. 
You need a Savior because you cannot save yourself. There is no duct tape or, or anything you can piece together that is going to fix this problem of your sin and rebellion against God. But Jesus is the Savior. He's the one who gave his life for us. And so do you understand the depth of your sin? This, this passage, in showing us the greatness of Jesus, his ability to completely save us means that you were completely helpless. You were hopeless apart from who he is. And so today, either having heard the, the, the word of God through the, the hymns and the gospel that was proclaimed, witnessing it in the, the waters of baptism, or, or hearing it read and proclaimed now, now that you understand this gospel, that to be saved means to, to, to trust in Jesus, to confess your sins, to admit, I cannot save myself. Jesus, I don't need you to drag me halfway. You've got to take me all the way. You've got to do it all to rescue me from my sin. Because in your own strength, by your own goodness, you will be condemned. You will be found guilty. But if you put your trust in Jesus, if you believe his death paid the penalty for your sins, if you, if you acknowledge that his resurrection gives you eternal life, then you are saved. And how much are you saved? The scriptures here tell us you are saved completely because the Savior has done it all. You're saved completely by the grace of God, not by your works, not by your efforts, not by the power of your preaching. Okay, that last one may have been a little more specific to me. Because Jesus is exactly the Savior we need. Look again at verse 26. He meets our needs because he is one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And when we speak of Jesus as holy, it, it is to declare something that's true about him and his character, that he's without flaw or without fault. But it's also to describe his mission. Because the scriptures repeatedly call Jesus our rescuer. They calls him the Holy One. And it's describing that he was the one being sent by God to give his life, but God would not leave his holy one to decay. That's the way David, the psalmist, says it in Psalm 16. That David knows he will not be abandoned because God will not let the holy one see decay. And the, and the, the New Testament apostles, when, when preaching on the ministry of Jesus, quote from, from that language of the psalm, that the holy one is the Messiah, the promised rescuer, this great high priest of Hebrews. And so we, we read that, that, that God will not, let the whole, will not abandon us to the grave, nor he will let the Holy One see decay. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, proclaims and, and preaches and says, I can tell you that David wasn't talking about himself. He's dead. David died. The, the sons of Aaron have died. But I can declare to you, this is in Acts chapter 2, that God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of this fact. So to declare Jesus to be holy is, yes, to declare something about his goodness and greatness, but it's also to acknowledge he is the one who is holy, sent for us to be the holy one in your place so that you might be forgiven. The, the, the words that follow there in verse 26 back in Hebrews 7, that Jesus is blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. It means he's free from all sin, able to save save those who have sinned. Because he doesn't need to offer sacrifice for himself. He can offer sacrifice on our behalf. He is freed from sin so that you and I, through trust in him, can be freed from our sin. When he takes away its shame, when he defeats its 
power when he takes away its guilt. And then Jesus is the one, we're told in verse 26, that is exalted above the heavens. Maybe you've seen the the pictures from that James Webb telescope, seeing farther and farther into space than we've ever seen. Jesus is exalted beyond and above that because, well, the universe, the galaxies fit in the palm of his hand. He's the creator who, with the word, speaks in that into existence. Whatever greatness or glory you've seen in the, in the created world around you, Jesus is exalted above that because he's not contained by that. He's not stopped by that. His glory extends everywhere. He is the Holy One, blameless, pure, set apart, exalted above the heavens. He is exactly the Savior that you and I need. And so he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And it's because the the book of Hebrews tells us his work on the cross, his sacrifice is finished. We read this in verse 27, the contrast between Jesus and the other high priests. Hebrews 7, 27. Unlike the other high priests, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. See, the the priestly ritual meant that there was a daily ritual of sacrifice. Day after day, week by week. Showing up for worship it was, was, was not as clean and bright and pleasant as it is for us. Now, do you ever get annoyed when you've got that one fly that's sort of lingering in your house? I mean, like that fly that is slower than molasses but smarter than you? When you show up in Old Testament worship and you bring your sacrifice and its blood is spilled and its body is sacrificed. This is a visceral experience. I mean, you can smell it and taste it walking into worship. But we didn't do that together this morning. Because our Savior doesn't have to keep offering sacrifices day after day. His work is finished. He has fully paid for your sins and mine on the, on the cross. Now, the Old Testament priests had to, had to do this daily, repeatedly, again and again. Not only for the sins of the people. Jesus is a priest who, who because he's pure and blameless, offers, sins only, offers sacrifice only for others because he himself is sinless. But the, the high priest, we're, we're told in the Old Testament that, that he had to be prepared if, if, if he was guilty and needed to confess sin, he had to bring a sacrifice first for himself before he could even be in a position to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. We see this most clearly, perhaps, in the Day of Atonement, the day on the the Old Testament calendar, in which which a sacrifice was was offered once for all. The the sins of the people placed on the scapegoat that was sent away, a, a picture, a promise that God would take away his people's sins. And then a sacrifice of atonement, where the blood was designed to cover the guilt of the people. But it, of course, had to cover the guilt of the priest as well. But as soon as you get done this sacrifice, well, 
doesn't last a whole year. What begins again tomorrow? More sacrifices to cover sin. But Jesus' sacrifice is, we're told here, he sacrificed for their sins once for all. That one sacrifice covers all of your sins because, because the sacrifice made is the one whose glory extends beyond the heavens. He's the only one with the strength, the power, the glory, the majesty to offer that kind of sacrifice. The only priest who would be in right standing to, to bring that sacrifice. The only sacrifice with enough power and majesty and perfection to cover not just a couple of our sins, but all of our sins, once for all. His work is sufficient and final. It covers all your sins. And that sacrifice was made once for all people extended beyond just the sons of Aaron, beyond the descendants of, of Abraham, beyond one ethnic group of people and, and extended to, to all nations. His sacrifice was once for all. You and I are invited to put our trust in him because your salvation does not depend upon your good works, but it depends upon the finished work of Jesus the finished, perfect, and forever work of Christ. He is our hope. So his ministry of sacrifice was completed once for all, but his ministry continues, remember, forever. He's there interceding for us, freed from the burden of sacrifice, glorified and exalted into heaven to continue his ministry on our behalf. Not a Savior who has abandoned us, but a Savior who did it all and promises to stay with us. But of course, the danger rises again when we slip into thinking, well, it's really all up to me. They say for baseball players that you were only as good as your last at bat. And for preachers, well, you're only as good as your last sermon. Which means if you haven't preached in a while, then, well, you're not so good at all. Or, well, this week you'll be judged by your most recent sermon. Oh, and then after that, there's another sermon coming. Sunday's coming. It can be the drumbeat of a pastor's week. Sunday's coming. But it can also be a powerful reminder that the resurrection gives us hope in the face of our sin, in, in, the, in the midst of our weariness. A preacher of a previous generation says it like this. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleeping. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary is crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sunday's a coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit burdened. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered, and Satan's just 
a laughing. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday is a coming. That repeated refrain, Sunday's a coming, reminds us that we can have hope because of Jesus' resurrection. That, that his work accomplished once for all on the cross was not the end of his ministry, but he has been raised to new life. His ministry lasts forever because he lives forever. Sunday's coming. But too frequently that phrase can feel like a burden. Ugh, Sunday's coming. Another sermon, day of exhaustion, a thousand needs pressed into one, complaints to collect, tasks left undone, Sundays coming. In those moments when I'm excited or exhausted by ministry, and on this Sunday when my sabbatical concludes and I return to the joys and challenges of gospel ministry, I have hope. Sunday has already come. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He reigns forever. He now lives always to intercede. Jesus is my perfect pastor, my constant Savior, and this allows me, it allows each of us to put our hope in the finished work of Jesus. He died once for all, but he continues to intercede for us. We have a pastor who needs no rest, who is not wearied or worried. He is our great high priest. He lives forever. He intercedes for us. Brothers and sisters, our hope is in Jesus Christ. He meets all our needs. Let's pray.